Let's read together 2 Kings chapter 10. I'm going to begin at uh, verse 1. And for those of you who are new, I use the uh, New American Standard. We'll read through verse 14. Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria, and Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria to the rulers of Jezreel, the elders, and to the guardians of the children of Ahab, saying, Now when this letter comes to you, since your master's sons are with you, as well as the chariots and the horses and the fortified city and the weapons, select the best and the fittest of your master's sons and set him on his father's throne and fight for your master's house. But they feared greatly and said, Behold, the two kings did not stand before him. How then can we stand? And the one who was over the household and he who was over the city, the elders and the guardians of the children, sent word to Jehu, saying, We are your servants. All that you say to us we will do. We will not make any man king. Do what is good in your sight. Then he wrote a letter to them a second time, saying, If you are on my side and you will listen to my voice, take the heads of the men, your master's sons, and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow about this time. Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were rearing them. When the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, 70 persons, and put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. When the messenger came and told him, saying, They have brought the heads of the king's sons, he said, Put them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. Now in the morning he went out and stood and said to all the people, You are innocent. Behold, I conspired against my master and killed him, but who killed all these? Know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he has, excuse me, what he spoke through his servant Elijah. So Jehu killed all who remained in the house of Ahab in Jezreel, and all his great men and his acquaintances and his priests, until he left him without a survivor. Then he arose and departed and went to Samaria. On the way, while he was at Beth Echhed of the shepherds, Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and said, Who are you? And they answered, We are the relatives of Ahaziah, and we have come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the queen mother. He said, Take them alive. So they took them alive. And killed them at the pit of Beth Echad, 42 men, and he left none of them. Amen. Now, we come to this really terrible, sobering portion of God's word. One of the things I was thinking about as I was writing this sermon was do I feel the weight of my own words? 
Do I feel the weight of my own words that I'm about to preach to you? And I, I asked myself that question because there is such a terribleness to this chapter, isn't there? That we have to realize that God has a message for us from this Old Testament story, this Old Testament history that is still applicable to our day. Remember, the Bible says that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. And uh, we, in Christ, need to learn something, I think, of the terribleness of God's judgment and of his wrath and be sobered by that. Now, let me say this. When we are rightly sobered by the judgments of God and his holiness and his wrath, it will help you to appreciate the love of God in Jesus Christ. That if you get nothing else out of today's message, I want you to understand that the more you see the holiness of God and the more you understand his righteous wrath against sin and his execution of that wrath against sinners, it will make you appreciate what Jesus did for you in going to the cross as he drank of the cup of God's justice. You know, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was praying, and he prayed three times, Father, let this cup pass. We have to understand it really wasn't the nails going through his palms or his feet or the crown of thorns that would be pressed on his head. That really wasn't the, the hard part. The hard part, the reason what caused Jesus to tremble in Gethsemane was the judgment, the wrath that was about to be executed upon him spiritually, the wrath of God that Christ would be plunged while hanging on that cross into the very depths of the equivalent of what a sinner pays for all eternity in hell. Remember, what Jesus does on the cross is atoning completely for an eternal punishment. What Christ does not take in himself for us is left for the sinner to be overwhelmed with himself for all eternity. Now, this is a great mystery. I don't claim to fully understand how Christ, in the space of a few hours, is able to endure the equivalent of what a sinner will pay separated from God forever. That is what the scriptures do teach. So as we... Think about, together as a church, the terribleness of what's going on in, in this chapter. I want us to remember that this is really kind of the backdrop, the canvas, if you will, whereby the, the, the picture of God's love and mercy for sinners comes forward. We have to understand the terribleness of the, of the history in order to appreciate also the amazing aspects of grace. Michael Horton, many years ago, wrote a book, Putting Amazing Back into Grace, wrote that we are not really all that amazed at grace, that secretly within us all, because we're sinners, there's an aspect of us that think, yeah, of course God would show me grace. I, I kind of deserve it. There's something within me that God would look upon favorably and God would give it to me. But we know the Bible says God does not grade on the curve. All of sin and come short 
of the glory of God. All have sinned, all are condemned. And yet God, out of his sovereign grace, has chosen a great multitude that no man can number to be his elect, for which Jesus Christ would die on the cross and atone for their sins. But in order to appreciate the grace we have been shown in Jesus Christ, we need to deal with the terrible stories. That's why we should sing the Psalms, too, because some of the Psalms are terrible, aren't they? I think the church that abandons psalm singing and sings only the hymns has a tendency to not sing about the terrible stuff. And there, there are terrible things in the Bible uh, because um, we, we deserve the wrath and curse of God. And, but when we deal soberly and honestly with, with these hard passages the judgment that is falling on the house of Ahab, the killing of 70 sons, it makes us then appreciate that God has spared us in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to appreciate the mercy of God today and the grace of Jesus Christ given for sinners by looking at this terrible passage with me now. Now, one of the things I want us to do here is, is look at the account, and I, I have a few things I want to say by way of points here. Let's first just review where we are. Now, in order to get a right understanding of this chapter, I want you to turn back one chapter to 2 Kings 9.8, especially for those of you who are visiting. You're jumping into a, a really weird kind of story. You need to realize that God had raised up a prophet, Elisha, and Elisha tells one of the prophets from his own school, who is an unnamed prophet, to go to Jehu, a man who is the captain. He's a general in the army of Israel. And this prophet goes and secretly in a room anoints him with oil. And if you look at 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 6, he arose and he went into the house and he poured the oil on his, that is Jehu's head, and said to him, now listen to this, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I have anointed you king. Hear that, boys and girls. Jehu has been anointed by God king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. And then verse 7, he says, and this you need to hear, you shall strike the house of Ahab, your master, that I, this is the Lord speaking now, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets. Remember, Jezebel went and sought to destroy all the Lord's prophets. If it wasn't for a man named Obadiah who hid them in fifties in caves, they might have all been destroyed. So great was the, the zeal for Jezebel's persecution of the Lord's people. Remember, Jezebel wants to replace the worship of Yahweh, the worship of the Lord, with Baal worship. She comes from a foreign country where Baal was God, and she is a part of her plan, wants to bring Baal worship into Israel to dominate. And she wants to rid Israel of all the rest of Jehovah's worship. And so God here says, I am going to avenge my blood. I want you to see here that it is the Lord who's bringing the vengeance, the judgment. Jehu is the instrument. But behind the instrument is the wrath and curse of God. He says, 
avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel, for the whole house of Ahab must perish. The whole house. And I will cut off from Ahab every male person, both bond and free, in Israel. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. The dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. There it was. That's what Jehu heard from the prophet who anointed him. He is to be an instrument of the Lord. Now, we know that God draws straight lines with crooked sticks, as some say. And Jehu is no doubt a crooked stick. But God is the one who is bringing this judgment on on Ahab here. Now, I want to deal with a difficulty that arose in my mind, and maybe it doesn't arise in yours, but I do pastorally want to anticipate maybe something that does arise in your mind as we deal with passages like this. And that is, how do we understand this judgment upon an entire household? When we compare it to what God says in, for example, Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, where he forbade in his own law the putting of sons to death for the sins of the father. That is, how do we understand the execution of God's judgment and wrath on the whole house of Ahab when if you look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 24 and and look at verse 16, Deuteronomy 24 and verse 16, we read this, Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. So I I wrestled with that as I was thinking about this passage here. Is this some kind of contradiction? Well, we know that that answer is no. God does not contradict himself. How do we understand this? Well, first of all, we have to understand that the command for the judgment on Ahab's house came from the lawgiver himself. So we have to understand God is the one who is the lawgiver, and, is, and he is the one who himself is just. Justice is measured by him himself. And so we know that God is not doing anything unjust here. God cannot sin. God cannot do any unrighteousness. It is not within his nature here. But the law in Deuteronomy, I think, spoke of what we might call mere civil crimes, if you will. And that if a man was guilty of a civil crime that was capital in nature, you were not to put his son to death for that crime if his son was not guilty of it. And same with the vice versa, the father for the son's crime. But here God is doing something redemptively historic. He is bringing a historical judgment whereby he is showing God's people that the throne of the king is to be a righteous throne because it is pointing to Jesus Christ. That is, there there is something that God's people are to understand here about Christ and the holiness of his throne and the righteousness of his throne. 
And what we have in Ahab's case is, is one who is impenitent in his rebellion and in his idolatry. And so that the judgment falls upon the whole lineage of Ahab. Now, we, we do see this sometimes in other places as well. For example, in Numbers chapter 16 and verse 23, we see God brings a judgment uh, against, against several households that are rebelling against Moses. If you look at Numbers chapter 16, and uh, if, you, if you've never read the book of Numbers, you know, there are a lot of great stories in, in Numbers. And um, don't let the title throw you off from reading this book. Numbers chapter 16, look at verse 23. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation, saying, Get back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Moses arose and went to Dathan, Abiram, with the elders of Israel. Remember, these are men who rose up. That, that, that you remember, they put a man to death for breaking the Sabbath. And people in Israel, as sometimes happens in church discipline, when the church disciplines, sometimes there's a negative reaction in the congregation. And there was a negative reaction to that discipline. And they rose up against Aaron and against Moses, including these, these households. And so God brings a judgment against these households. And so he says, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing that belongs to them, or you will be swept away with all, in, in all their sins. So notice here he's telling anybody who's associated with these men are going to suffer this judgment. This judgment is not going to come upon these men alone, but everybody who is near unto them and associated with them. And so here comes Dathan and Abiram, and they come out and they stand at the doorway of their tents along with their wives and their sons and their little ones. And Moses says, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me, he says. But then what happens? The Lord opens the mouth of the earth, doesn't he? And all of these men and all of their family are swallowed up. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions so that they all belonged, so that all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished in the midst of the assembly. God, again, brought a great redemptive judgment, didn't he? That included not just the individuals, but their whole household. We see in Joshua chapter 7, Achan and his family and his animals are all stoned. Remember that the Bible said that as the people of God were taking the land of Israel from the Canaanite nations, they were to covet nothing that pertained to the idolatry and the practices of those nations. But Achan, he began to covet the precious metals and he hid them in his tent. And yet God brought a judgment on the whole household. Uh, we see also in 2 Samuel 21, a judgment is, is brought upon the descendants of Saul. You'll remember 2 Samuel chapter 21, there, there is a, a famine, a, a, a uh, drought, and David inquires of the Lord, and it's because Saul had unjustly killed uh, some who should not have been killed, and, and so God ren renders a judgment on Saul's house. So sometimes 
When it pertains to redemptive historical events, God does include whole households in judgment. Now, let me make some applications, because you say, boy, what's, what's the point of all this? Let me give you several applications. First of all, we fear God. We need to fear God. The, we live, thankfully, in, in a day of God's patience. Uh, Peter tells us that, uh, you know, there, there are people who say, well, where's your Lord? Where's your Savior? You know, another century comes, another century goes, and it's just the same, maybe a little more sophisticated, more technology. But you Christians keep saying, oh, the Lord's going to return, the Lord's going to return, the Lord's going to return, and he's going to bring out this great judgment. He's gonna, he's, there's going to be this great judgment day, and yet every year is the same as the previous year. And, and Peter responds to that charge. What does Peter say? Peter says, don't count the slowness of God as something bad or negative. It's the mercy of God. What is God doing in delaying the sending of his son back? He is, he is delaying the execution of his justice. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't come back several years ago? I know I am because I wasn't a Christian. <laughs> you know, I'm glad Jesus didn't come in 1987. Me too. <laughs> I, I, I would have been condemned. But it, it was the slowness of, of God. It was the patience of God by which the kingdom of Christ continued to grow and God in his mercy sent the Holy Spirit into my life and opened my eyes to the truth of his word and gave me a desire to believe on Jesus and to follow Jesus. And my whole life was changed. And I became a new creature in Jesus Christ. And by the summer of 88, I was publicly professing faith in Jesus Christ. And people at Davidson College were saying, what happened to Boyd? He wasn't like this two years ago. Now he's following the Lord. Now he's witnessing to people on campus. When did he get religion? So we should count it as grace. Some of you may be unreconciled to God today. And right now, you enjoy the benefits of God. And sometimes, I know it's tempting to think, oh, there's this hellfire preacher. He's trying to scare me into heaven. We have it so good, I think there is the temptation to believe that God is not a God of wrath. We are so well fed. Our grocery stores are so full we drive the latest automobiles. We've got refrigerators. We've got freezers. We've got computers. We've got things Solomon never dreamed of. And I think a lot of sinners think there's no way God is a God of wrath. My God is a God of love, they say. Surely God would not command terrible things like this to happen to Ahab's house. Surely God would not send sinners into everlasting fire. Surely God would not punish people for trillions and trillions and trillions of years. Don't make your own thoughts the basis of your judgment. Look at what the Word of God is saying. Let the Word of God be the standard and the judge of your thoughts. Not your thoughts, the judge of God. This is what, let all men be liars and let God be true. 
Let God be the one who tells you what reality holds. Otherwise, you're going to be like Eve, and you're going to say, well, God says this, and Satan says that, and I get to be the decider. And that usually goes badly. Fear the Lord. Augustine said it many centuries ago, that we believe God in order that we might know. We believe God in order that we might know. He didn't say know in order that you might then come to the conclusion that you believe. He said start with faith. Faith is the beginning of right understanding. Faith is the beginning, Proverbs says, Proverbs 1, of knowledge. We must fear the Lord first. Then we come to a proper understanding of what is truly just and what is grace. We don't sit in judgment of God for what he did to Ahab's house. God is sitting in judgment of us, my New Testament professor used to tell us. We don't come to the Bible sitting in judgment, is this true and is this not true? The Bible sits in judgment of us. The Bible is the inerrant and infallible word. And the Bible says he is a God of justice. He is a God of wrath, an infinite wrath. But the Bible also says, and here is the good news, and I am a proclaimer of good news, that there is a way of escape, that Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners. That is, God is favorable to sinners. God loves sinners. God sent Jesus Christ out of his love for sinners, and he loves the reprobate as sincerely as he loves the elect. Jesus pleads with the reprobate in the free offer of the gospel as much as he pleads with the elect. And and he pleads with us all indiscriminately to repent and believe the gospel. The good news is that God is taking care of this problem. We once were under the wrath and curse of God, but God sent Jesus Christ into the world to bear that curse. And Jesus has done that. He's accomplished it. And Jesus drank from that cup that I spoke of earlier. He took the cup. He asked the Father, if there's another way to do this, let it happen. But there was no other way. The Son must drink the cup of the Father's wrath to pay for sin. Sin cannot be winked at by the Father. Sin must be dealt with. The things we've said, the things we've done that are shameful must really be dealt with by the Father. And he deals with it in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ owns the the skeletons in your closet are owned by Jesus Christ. And every one of you has skeletons, including me. Everybody has skeletons in their closet. Every house. Jesus Christ says, I'll take that for you. Believe on me and you will be saved. Believe on me, Paul said to the Philippian jailer, you and your household will be saved. That that as God here redemptively brings judgments, we see sometimes on whole households, the gospel comes to whole households. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your house shall be saved. We need to fear the Lord, we need to believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, by way of application, 
We need to recognize that God may bring historical judgment still yet prior to the second coming. God may still yet bring historical judgments on nations, as nations, prior to the second coming of Christ. One of the things that we learn in the book of Kings is that God is a sovereign God of history. Now, yes, this is a special history. It's redemptive history, but it does apply. Even though we, we are not you know, within the confines of the pages of the older New Testament right now. Nevertheless, God is the same today as he was then. God is sovereign over the nations. God still cares about justice. God still cares about righteousness. The things that provoked God in the days of Abraham and Lot still provoke him today. And God may, according to his wisdom, he may bring judgments. He may bring. Now, I do not have any prophetic gift to tell you what is going on providentially. And I think we have to be careful to interpret providence. As one of my professors said in seminary, if you think the Bible is hard to interpret, providence is harder to interpret. To know what God's going, go, doing in his providence is very hard. God's doing a million things in his providence. And I think it was Tim Keller who said, you know about three of them. <laughs> You know about three things that God's doing. God, God has a plan, and yet God may grow weary of, of individuals or families or even nations whom he has long suffered over and continues to be provoked by our impenitence. I think that means we do need to bring a message to our culture that the blessings for which this land has long been known may come to an end if, if, if God so chooses. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know, and I, I, I can't guess. But we must, I think, fear the Lord. Now, the good news is that the Bible also says that if there are ten righteous men in a city... God may spare the city. Now, he may take those ten men out and then destroy it. But recognize that God does bring judgments, and we should fear the Lord. And we also need to recognize this. The Bible says in Jesus that unless we repent, we too will perish. That which fell upon Ahab and his sons will happen to us if we reject Jesus Christ. You remember the controversy that was brought to Jesus, and it was kind of the CNN headlines of the day, and apparently Pontius Pilate had done something awful to a number of the Jews, and he slaughtered them and mingled their blood with the blood of unclean animals. And they were coming to Jesus, and they were saying, did you hear what Pilate has done? And what was Jesus' response? Jesus said, essentially, that unless we repent, we likewise would suffer, or he was saying to that generation, unless you repent, you will likewise suffer. Now, that may have been a prophecy referring to AD 70, but it certainly applies to the final judgment of the Lord. He said, consider the Tower of Siloam. Apparently, there was a tower in Siloam that fell down and killed a lot of people. And he said, don't think those people are any worse than you. Don't think the house of Ahab, these sons of Ahab, in some sense, by nature, were any worse than us. 
But if we don't repent, we too shall perish. Well, let me give a, just a, some, uh, a closing thought or two here, and then we need to come to the Lord's table. Here's a couple more closing thoughts. One, we see the sins of men impact others. The sins of Ahab and Jezebel had covenantal consequences. We don't live unto ourselves. Our holiness or our lack of holiness impacts other people. And therefore we must seek the holiness without which there is no salvation. The sins that we entertain, those sins may be visited in judgment upon the generations that follow. And they may even grow worse over time. And therefore, we, we need to examine ourselves. We say, oh, it's only the Sabbath day. It's no big deal. Look at how many people abuse and desecrate the Lord's day. And there doesn't seem to be any consequence for them. Why don't we also lighten up a little bit as Presbyterians? Why don't we start amusing ourselves with all kinds of work or recreations or other things? Why devote yourself in the entirety of the day to worshiping God and meditating on his word and resting and fellowshipping with God's people? And Surely God will let it slide. Well, you know, it's, think about, have you ever thought that the fourth commandment, that remember the Sabbath day? It made God's top ten list. It's right there with adultery and murder. Have you ever thought about that? So our, our, our sins may have covenantal consequences that if we were to look down history and see what followed, we, we would probably say, ah, oh, Lord, have mercy. But then also, finally, and this is the most amazing part, I think, of the message here. Our Heavenly Father has no sin. And yet what? His Son suffered terribly for us. Our Father, if there was anyone whose Son should never have been murdered, it was our Heavenly Father, who's done us nothing but good and blessed us. And yet the Father and the Son together in eternity past agreed together in a covenant of redemption. It wasn't though Jesus was unwilling. You need to understand that. The Father and the Son agreed with the Spirit that the Son would come in and would be executed. That Jesus Christ would suffer the fate and worse of the Ahab sons. He would come into this world a righteous son with a righteous father. He would represent his father perfectly to us. Jesus said that the, father, that the son speaks only that which the father gives him. How long have I been with you, my disciples? If you have seen me, you have what? Seen the father. The father decrees from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The Father delighted in the Son, and the Son delighted in the Father. The Son did that which was always pleasing to the Father. The Father loved the Son. And yet the Son was crushed, Isaiah 53, for our iniquities. 
Jesus Christ was crucified according to Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He would utter from that psalm. He was crushed because he was taking the sins and the curse of those sins upon himself. He died for your sins and my sins. He died that we could be pardoned and forgiven and justified in the sight of God, that everyone who believes could be declared righteous. This is God's covenant. Let us look to the Son and believe in him. Amen. Father, we thank you for the terribleness of the word and also the good news of Jesus Christ.